Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. Now, if you have the blue ESV, or just any ESV, you will notice that there is no verse 28 in the, in the body of the text, but it's been dropped down to a footnote. I'm going to bring that back up and read it as part of the text, for it is. But before we hear God's word, let us go to the Lord asking for his help and understanding and applying this text. Who can discern his, er- his errors, Lord? Declare us innocent from our hidden faults. Use the light that is your word to uncover and convict our faults, and your spirit to comfort us with the same word we pray. Amen. This is Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. Hear now the word of God. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander, and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The 80-year-old man was eating dinner when the news broke out that some Christians had been executed in Rome. As the Romans were seeking the blood of any who professed Christ, the crowd chanted for the death of this old man. Polycarp. Must have been quite the education for this bishop of Smyrna to have received quite the the teaching from the Apostle John. Polycarp chose to remain in Rome rather than to flee, and no surprise, he was then eventually arrested. And while he was under the control of Roman soldiers, he had food prepared for them, and he was granted permission to pray. He prayed for all the Christians he knew. He prayed for 
Christians in general. Of course, he prayed for those Christians who were under great persecution, as he himself was. And because of his old age, he was given a final chance to live. All he had to do was swear by Caesar and say, take away the atheists, pointing to all those Christians who did not accept the gods of Rome. But Polycarp looked at the crowds, clamoring for his blood, pointed to them, and said, take away the atheists. The proconsul persisted, swear, and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them, for we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse. Even when he was threatened with fire, Polycarp, Polycarp firmly replied, you threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire, the coming judgment, and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring it on. Polycarp knew that denying the Christ was to bring reproach upon this precious name. It was to blaspheme the name above all names, which new name he had been graciously given and had upon him for 86 years. Such steadfastness of spirit was possible only because the Messiah first took upon himself the reproach of the world, the mockery of all those naysayers, and murder at the hands of the wicked. Now, whether or not we've had our fill of sandwiches, Mark keeps feeding them to us. Some of you are new to this sermon series, so Mark is not just about a physical sandwich. He, he knows what a sandwich is, you know what a sandwich is, but he loves what are called literary sandwiches. So what he loves to do, he loves to begin a story, and before he finishes that story, insert another story. And then conclude the first story, and what he's doing is he's telling us that something in the middle, very important, is the focus, and that these two are connected. So the two pieces of bread are slathered with slander. There's mockery on either side of this, this piece of uh, this, this meat. The mocking shame of everyone we can consider. Whereas the meat of the sandwich, the center of it all, is the cross. Exactly where it ought to be. We see from these verses that Jesus the Christ was mocked and murdered for the salvation of the many. Nobody likes being mocked. It's just not nice. I suppose that with the last name like Mock, I was destined to be the object of mockery. Perhaps it was the last name. Perhaps it was the red hair, the pale skin, or my own introverted personality, whatever it was, whatever they were, my middle school and high school cohorts believed that they had ample reasons to bully me, mock me, deride me. It seemed like the red hair was a magnet for the mockers the world over. The names I was so affectionately given cannot be repeated in public, of course not in a sermon. The bullying and mocking were felt rather seriously by yours truly, so much so that I wanted to change the color of my hair. I was pleading with my mom day after day until she relented, 
I plead plead with her that she would purchase for me some hair dye. Change this red hair. Can't have it, Mom. Just give me brown like everyone else. Now, I don't know. I have to get confirmation from her. She might be listening to this or soon will. She did give me something, but it didn't change my hair color. It might have just been a different kind of shampoo. Maybe that was her way of saying, be settled, be content with this red hair. And I learned to love it. But it was rough being mocked for just red hair. And this bullying was consistent enough, and I must have used it as maybe a joking mechanism to tell others to back off. What's your name? What's your last name? Mock. Oh, did you say mock? Yeah, mock as in don't mock me. In fact, I believe I even introduced, I even said that to a couple of visitors just last week. But I say this not to garner your, your sympathy. Oh, poor little Pastor Mock. Not that. I'm a big boy now, and thankfully those days are past me. But it is to point out that my case is certainly not unique, as some of you perhaps know. You've lived through high school, you are currently going through it, or middle school, and you know what? Even the mockery doesn't stop at that period. It goes on to adulthood at times. Co-workers might deride another, and it can have varying degrees of severity. At times, we're mocked for things that are outside our control, like our looks, our physical inabilities, whatever. doesn't matter. A kid will, will take anything. An adult will take anything to, to use against an individual. Sometimes we are mocked for the embarrassing things that we have done. But, of course, we don't speak about those things. Sometimes we treat others like dogs, rubbing their noses in the urine of their sin. Sometimes parents are pretty good at doing this with their children. There's no grace. It's just mockery. Some of us have had a single scoffer, whereas others have had multiple mockers throughout our lives. What we see from the Gospel of Mark here is that the entire world is set to deride the Messiah, to condemn the Christ. No one has been mocked like our mediator, like the Messiah. Pagans and passersby, we see, taunt the Messiah. Verse 16, follow along with me again. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So before Jesus is compelled to carry his cross, he is forced to endure much more abuse. We already saw him undergo abuse before. Now he continues to receive abuse. Soldiers can be pretty gnarly, violent men, and we depend upon their power, their control to defend us. But sometimes these Mighty men can use their power and control to ridicule, to oppress, to abuse. Remember Goliath's taunt, looking at David's inexperienced, youthful, and handsome figure. He disdained him. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Well, actually, yes, but uh, that's another sermon. These Roman soldiers take advantage of this, you know, this king of the Jews, this cute little thing, this son of David, this lord of of David, he says, this king of the Jews, look at this thing, all weak. And they think that it's time to play some dress up. Here, let's 
put a royal robe on him to, to help him play the part. If he's, if he's a king, he's got to have a robe. What else do we need? Oh, yes, we need, of course, a crown. A king ought to have a crown. If he doesn't have the crown, he's no king. But let's do a little twist. Let's add some thorns. Place it upon his brow. Dig deep into his skull. What else? Well, of course, we have to, we have to salute him. He needs to have homage paid to him. He is, after all, a king. Let us salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Let us not forget to bow and kiss the sun. Oh, fools, if you only knew. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, Psalm 2 says. Pagans would taunt him. So would passers-by, we read in verses 29 and 30, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So as these were just passing by, they thought a little scoffing was in order, maybe to break up the, the journey, just have a little entertainment at this criminal's expense. They must have known of Jesus because they used some of his words against him. They show their ignorance, though, of the true meaning of this mockery, because if Jesus does not die, then he cannot raise his body up, his temple, in three days. Such irony. And by taking on the reproach of these pagans and passersby, he fulfills Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, along with his third prediction that the sun would be mocked, would be spat upon, would be flogged, and would be killed. These passersby have adopted the spirit of Belial that so infected that king of Assyria. Remember the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, in the days of Hezekiah, came and, and taunted those in Jerusalem, saying that their God was unable to save them. Look at all these other nations. Not one of their gods could save them. What do you think? Your God is any different? Who is Yahweh according to, or, compared to my hand? Oh, Jerusalem, do not listen to Hezekiah when he says that the Lord will deliver you. No. He taunts Hezekiah. He, he taunts those in Jerusalem. And the Lord took that as mockery, took that as scoffing. He did not take kindly to Sennacherib's scoffs, and so they all, 185,000, died. The Lord deals justly with mockery. Pagans, passersby, mocked him. So did priests and the punished. Verse 31, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Here we have the elite of the day, and they're joining in on the fun. These priests, like Shimei, who cursed David, get out, you man of blood. This is when David was kicked out by his son, Absalom. Shimei says, get out, you man of blood. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. In that spirit, these respectable servants of God pick up a taunt. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of the Lord. You, Jesus, King of the Jews, you, you thought that you could take down our temple? 
You thought that you could upend this whole system that we've got going? How dare you? And look, all your efforts brought to nothing. They arrogate to themselves this a kind of prophetic scoffing uttered by Elijah before the false prophets of Baal. Come on, ask your God to help you. Is your God too busy to save you? Is he away on a trip? He's just not hearing your calls for, for help? Maybe he's using the bathroom. He can't get up to help you. Call upon him. Look at this weak man. He saved others. He can't even save himself. It's ridiculous. The very end of this text, verse 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So he lost the respect of those religious authorities. Well, I'm not sure he, ever, he actually ever had it to begin with. But he also lost the sympathy of the punished. What a low point for Jesus to have received mockery from these murders, these rebels, these revolutionaries. You know that you've, you've had to have gotten to a low point when your fellow criminal mocks you. He has nothing to gain by it. He joins in on the shame. It's not like you and me against all these naysayers, against the, the, the world here, Jesus. No, he, they join in. And we might wonder, well, wasn't one of those rebels the thief on the cross? Indeed it was. So he must have mocked Jesus and been changed pretty soon thereafter. But these are nothing compared to what I'm calling paternal mockery, as in the expression of the wrath of God. So we already saw last Lord's Day evening in Psalm 2 that the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord looks at the wicked and he holds them in derision. And he is speaking to them in his fury. He is terrifying them with his wrath. And that is upon, that, that expression of wrath is upon the Messiah. Several passages in the Psalms show this. Psalm 39, do not make me the scorn of a fool. The psalmist is pleading with the Lord, don't make me the scorn of a fool. Or Psalm 79, we have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? We are mocked, we are derided. This is felt as an expression of your anger, O Lord. How long shall we endure this mockery? Or Psalm 89, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. Full of wrath against your anointed. The one you set up as king over Israel? And here, over king of the Jews? King over heaven and earth? Yes, the Lord has taken upon himself the mockery of the world. One man says, on the one hand, the mockery expresses the sinfulness of the world as it pours contempt upon the creator. On the other, it is utilized by God as an instrument of his wrath. No one has been mocked like our mediator, 
the Messiah. You know what the saying, though, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What an awful saying. That's so patently not even true. Words do hurt. Now, granted, some are a little too quick to be offended today by words, constantly being triggered by anything. But real words can be used as weapons against you, and they do hurt. But even if that statement were true, it wouldn't entirely apply to Jesus, who had injury added to insult. And before we consider that injury, that fatal injury added to insult, we see three points of application come to the fore for us to consider. The first here is, no amount of mockery can deny the Messiah's miracles. No amount of mockery can deny what the Messiah has done. The people here acknowledged that Jesus saved, that he healed others. They couldn't deny that Jesus turned water into wine. They couldn't deny that Jesus walked on water. They couldn't deny that he raised people from the dead. He could, they couldn't deny that he healed people of fevers and many diseases. They couldn't deny that he kicked demons out of people. So in that sense, they acknowledge he saved others. He brought healing in his wings. But that recognition is not one of faith. So again, we are seeing from Mark that you can marvel. You can even say, you can acknowledge to someone that Jesus has done good things and not be a true believer, not be a true disciple of Christ. If you do not personally trust in him as your Lord, as your Savior, as one who did a marvelous work, salvation for you, then you are not his. The people acknowledge this, that he did these things. You can hurl all the stones You want the Savior, but he is no less a Savior because of it. What you do, what you say, does not change who Jesus is and what he has done. The miracles testify to the identity of Jesus. They are a record of his Messiahship, of his mission, who he is and what he has come to do to save the many, to be a ransom for the many, to do his Father's will. And to then send the Spirit to apply his work. And you can mock him all you want, but you will not be the last one standing mocking him. No amount of movement can distance you from these mouths of mockery. That's a second point of application. No amount of movement can distance you from these mouths of mockery. We cannot sing, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, If we move away from these blasphemous passersby, these pagans, these priests, these punished ones, because of this, we deserve the divine mockery that is spoken of in Psalm 2. We ought to be the ones in hell raging against the Lord, raging against the Lord's anointed, who in heaven is holding us in derision for all eternity. That is what we deserve. And that we don't have it is cause for praise. So praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for turning that divine curse into a divine blessing. Such grace, such marvelous grace. The third point here is that no amount of mockery can shake us. 
Paul says, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let us go to Calvary. Let us go to Golgotha. Let us go to where he is. Let's leave this superficially clean area where the temple is, where everyone's obeying the Lord externally. Let's leave this and go to where Jesus is, that place of uncleanness, that place of reproach, of shame, of death, of destruction. Let us go there. Why go there? Because that's where Jesus is. I never want to be where Jesus is not. And if that means suffering, persecution, if that means being mocked, then so be it. As we sang earlier, pain is pleasure. Pain and persecution is the pleasure in the Lord. Moses, as, as we're told, considers the reproach of Christ a reward greater than the earth's treasures. Collect all the world's goods. Have all that you ever asked for or imagined. Have all your nice house and cars and job, reputation and all that. Collect it all. It is, as Paul would say, dung. According to, or compared to, contrasted with the reproach of Christ. The shame of Christ. The mockery that he received. What a great reward we have to be with Christ. As Paul says in Romans 15.3, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. Let us expect that we too will be mocked, that we too will be shamed, that we too will be derided. And let us say with Polycarp, why do you delay? Come on, bring it on. I can take it because I'm in Christ who took it for me. And you know what? It's not just I can take it, but I'm going to think differently about it. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Well, I sure don't feel blessed. I feel cursed. Yes, you are literally being cursed by the world. But the curse of the world here is the blessing of God. Again, because it shows whose you are. It shows that you are in Christ. You're joined with him, and there's no other, there's no greater relationship than that. Although with our sin, we shut the doors of heaven on ourselves, the Lord, by his grace, has opened the windows of heaven for us and has poured down blessings beyond measure. And with the blessings of heaven resting upon us in the form of a dove, now we can persevere in a life filled with Satan's scorn and scoffers aplenty. We must remember our Savior when we are mocked without just cause. And we must make our plea to the Lord. We're not going to minimize the mockery that we receive. We, we don't need to despair. We simply plead with the Lord for that momentary grace, that grace in the moment, that we might be sustained, that we might consider ourselves a blessed that our hearts would be full of joy because this is just a sign that we belong to Jesus. Well, we come to verse 20, the end of verse 20, and we see the Messiah murdered. And they led him out to crucify him. The Lord was led away by sinful men to do what sinful men do. And when you read all four Gospels, 
You see that since the time of Gethsemane, Jesus was led at least 10 different times. He was led to Annas, the former high priest, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate, then to Herod, then to Pilate again, then to inside the praetorium, then to outside before the crowds, then to inside the praetorium again, then to outside before the crowd again, and then to Calvary. Ten times he was led. As Isaiah foretold, the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. But remember Proverbs 16, 33 and 32 before it. As they cast lots for the garments of the Christ, we are reminded that the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is of the Lord. And so here we have the good shepherd, the father, leading his son to his son's death. Through the hands of these wicked men, ten times led. Behind it is the father's hand leading his son to death, to die. But, but as Isaac, he submits to his father's will. Okay, Dad, if that's, if that's what we're going to do, let's go. As he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city, the son rules his spirit as he receives the mockery and the murder that he would take over not just a city, but all the nations as king. Christ is crucified. At Golgotha, Jesus is offered wine to drink, but this he refuses. The wine here that's being offered, there are two different cups if you read Matthew and Mark, but Mark focuses on one cup, the one that he refuses. The reason he refuses is it was mixed with myrrh. And this mixture was intended to dull his mind and to lessen his pain, to lessen the pain of the cross. Now, it could be a kindness from doctors to give suffering patients some drugs, some morphine, and perhaps some of us are, we want those. Yes, please, we need these drugs because... This pain is unbearable, and we should never look, upon, look negatively upon anyone who would accept this kind of care. It's a blessing from God to use medicine to help us. But some women, in labor in particular, they refuse that epidural. They refuse whatever medical assistance they might have been offered because they want to feel the pain of that labor. Maybe a bit of that sting of the curse. They want to They want to feel it. As the son prepares his disciples for the labor pains of his death, he refuses the wine. Christ is so set on satisfying the fullness of the wrath of the Father, and to do so with a clear mind, he says, no, I'm going to bear it all. All the pain, all the physical pain, all the emotional pain, the pain of suffering or the wrath of the Father, I'm going to Take it all. So at the third hour and nine in the morning, the crucifixion begins. So we have several hours on the cross, Jesus on the cross. And even though these many hours on the cross seem unimaginable, it was actually unusually fast. People would be on the cross for days, if not a week. They would just slowly die. 
being picked at by vultures, being continually mocked at by passers-by. Eventually, they would expire. But Mark doesn't give us the details of the crucifixion. You notice that? It says that, he, that they let him, out, let him out to crucify him. Why does he not give us all these all the gory details. We'll see some. Uh, we'll see Jesus' interaction with the Father on the cross next week. But Mark doesn't give us all these details because, well, one, his readers knew them. He's writing to people, to Christians in Rome who've been persecuted, and some of their own friends have perhaps been crucified. They've seen crucifixions. The Romans perfected this execution of justice. So Mark didn't have to share the details, but also because his focus is not so much on the act or the physical pain of the cross as he is on the meaning of the cross, what Christ effected through his death on the cross. And in the coming verses, the wrath of the Father upon the Son, that's Mark's focal point. But I mentioned that we were going to read verse 28 for the uh, scripture reading, for the sermon text, and, and so we, we did. I'm not going to get into the textual differences and all that, but most of the manuscripts and even some very early good reliable manuscripts do have verse 28. So does Matthew, and some say, well, Mark or Matthew borrowed from the other. But the, the phrase is, he was numbered with the transgressors. This is Isaiah 53, verse 12. That great section of Scripture that speaks of the suffering servant. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with them, as in he was crucified alongside transgressors. He was crucified alongside criminals. We saw this with in the previous week. He was numbered with Barabbas' accomplices, these rebels, these fellow murderers, these revolutionaries. He was with them. But he's also numbered with them as in being identified with them. That is to say, the innocent, even the righteous, is considered guilty. Though he has no sin in himself, he's not committed any wrongdoing, he is viewed as a guilty criminal. And with Christ in the middle... He is seen as the centerpiece of the criminals. He is seen as the heart of evil. The focal point is on him as criminal. And of course, criminals ought to be condemned. They ought to be crucified. He was numbered with the transgressors. And with Mark 10, 45 in the background, that the Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for the many, we see that the meaning of the cross of Christ crucified is the salvation of the many. He is accomplishing the very thing that he said he was going to accomplish, the very thing that his father sent him to do. And so let's recall the mockery. He saved others. He cannot save himself. In every miracle, Calvin says, that he had done, he had displayed the great treasures of his goodness and power, yet these things are still held against him. Often, bad things that we do are held against us. Very rarely will a good thing be held against us. Those are typically warmly received. But here, Jesus has done wonderful things. 
He's always done good to people. So many healings. John says, if, if we were to write down every single miracle, every single thing Jesus did, the world couldn't contain too many books. He saved others. But these mocking voices do not have the truth on their side. However violent, they, they hurl the mockery. The truth is, dear ones, that Jesus refused to save himself so that he would save people. So that he would save his people. He saved others by not saving himself. That's what we see here. Oh, the strength of spirit it must have taken for him to hang on that cross. To hear, come down and then save people. No, absolutely not. If I come down, I won't save anyone. I must stay here. I will stay here until it is finished. That people would be saved. The New Testament illustrates this change rescuing us from destruction in the life here of Simon of Cyrene. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Mark does not want us to forget about Simon. As some of us know, the cross had two separate beams. There was the vertical one, and there was the horizontal one. And the the horizontal, the the crossbar, that was what the criminal, the one condemned to die, would carry to Golgotha. The vertical was already there, ready to be um, nailed, ready for the person to be nailed into it. And we know what Jesus' body had just undergone, that scourging, those 40 lashes minus one, that flesh-tearing scourging, innards exposing destruction. So the Lord's body was weakened. It couldn't carry the cross the rest of the way. The, The heavy plank of wood, it was torturous. So Simon, who's coming in from the, the country of Cyrene, was suddenly compelled to carry this crossbeam the rest of the way. And as Jesus tells us in, Romans, in Matthew 5, that the Romans had authority to force someone to carry a load for them. Remember, Jesus says, if someone forced you to carry a load, a mile, you go too. So Simon was forced to carry this cross for Jesus. He was part of the diaspora, that spreading of Jews that didn't reside in Jerusalem, so most likely he's coming for the Passover festivities. And as he's coming his way, his steps are redirected. Do not think it an accident that Mark mentions Simon and Alexander and Rufus. Mark rarely gives us the family details of anyone, unless it is very important. And here he mentions Simon is the father of an Alexander. He's the father of a Rufus. Matthew and Luke don't tell us this. Why Mark? Because remember, Mark is writing to Christians in Rome who are undergoing persecution. And Paul, curiously, or rather providentially, as God works everything out in his word here, 
He says to Christians who are in Rome, Romans 16, 13, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Give him a greeting. Give his mom a greeting. The Christian church knows this man and this man's children. Simon's wife, Rufus' mother, becomes like a spiritual mother to Paul. Simon's son, Rufus, is, we're told, chosen of the Lord, elect of the Lord, plucked out by the Lord. And thanks be to God, we see at Pentecost, the people from Cyrene heard the gospel of Jesus' saving grace. And so let's apply these words as we remain amazed at what Christ has done for us. Christ saves sinners through extraordinary means. The Lord who directs all our ways used Roman pagan soldiers to compel a man to carry the cross of the Messiah who would, by his spirit, save this man. Simon was forever changed that day as he carried the cross of the soon-crucified Messiah. We don't know what went on in that man's mind as the Spirit was renewing his mind. But, as we saw last time, the Lord takes the place of sinners. And when you've considered your own testimony, it might be similar to Simon's. You look back, And you marvel at how God has used odd people, odd events perhaps, to bring you to salvation. Perhaps your conversion resonates with the conversion story of Rosaria Butterfield, whose book title says it all, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a flaming feminist, liberal, and a homosexual professor. And you can read about it in that book. I won't spoil it. But I'll tell you that the Lord had used a gentle but unashamed pastor in the area to send her a letter that she was just going to overlook and had overlooked, I believe it was, for over a month. Just perhaps considering it hate mail. But she opened it, read it, was invited to come and talk with him and his wife. And she was immediately surrounded with truth and with love. And she was changed. The Lord used this pastor, this unlikely figure, to bring salvation to an unlikely convert. Someone who, according to her own admission, was furthest away from, from Christ, didn't want anything to do with Christ. The Lord works in strange ways, doesn't he? Some, he might even use pesty providences to bring us to salvation. I was reading this morning about the story of Betsy and Corey Ten Boom, who hid the, uh, some spies from uh, Nazis in World War II. And you might recall that they were all in this room, and they had to hide their Bible. And this Bible was used to, well, obviously have a Bible study for these women. And They kept hiding this Bible. Obviously, they didn't want it to be found. They wanted to keep giving life to these women. And eventually, they learned that the guards weren't coming in the room. Does anyone remember why the guards weren't coming in the room? She says it right there. Fleas. Fleas. The guards wanted nothing to do with the fleas. The fleas kept them out. The Lord used these nasty little creatures to keep the guards away so that 
Corey and, and Betsy could give the word of God to these women. And their lives were changed. The Lord works in strange ways. We would not consider fleas to be a blessing, but the Lord uses everything to bring forth his word, to save sinners. The Father loves to glorify his name by picking out unlikely hell-bound sinners and saying, not today, not ever, you are mine. And he doesn't do that just to individuals. We see that Christ saves families because of his commitment to covenant families. Of course, we don't have time to develop all this, but if you stick around, you know our teaching of God working through covenants. Already from the beginning, Adam and Noah and Abraham said I wasn't going to get into it. But he saves families. He loves families. He changes the course of life for whole families, as he does here with Simon and his children, who were so influential in the early church. The cross changes family trees as these families trust in the one who is cursed and hanging on a tree. And finally, we see that the saved take up their cross and follow Jesus. Simon literally took up the cross of Christ. You could say he was the first one to do that. This action was the start of lifelong self-denial, of a forever lifting up his name. And this is an expectation for all Christians. The Puritan Thomas Hooker says, You must not think to go to heaven on the feather bed. If you will be Christ's disciples, you must take up his cross, and it will make you sweat. Expect it. Expect the derision of the world. Expect the suffering that comes with union with Christ. And we lift high the cross as we lift our burdens up to him, as we throw them at the foot of the cross, as we find pardon in his blood, merciful strength to bear the reproach of Christ. Dear ones, if there is no pain of the cross, there is no glory from the cross. But if we take up the cross and follow Jesus, then we follow him to where he is now in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Keep back your servants from presumptuous sins, O high King of heaven. Use the word just heard and preached now to let not our sins have dominion over us, but to let our lives be subject to all the, the members of Christ. Christ who is our all in all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.